Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, good morning to those of you here at Central Campus, those of you meeting up in the chapel and the Galleria uh, here at Central, and also those of you who are meeting together uh, at one of our regional campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and the Crowfoot Theatres of Northwest Calgary, and of course, those of you who are joining us online, especially those who don't have the strength to come to church this morning because you got up at 5 a.m. to watch Team Canada win the gold. Yes, all right, yes. (laughs) Anyways, we miss you, but still love you. Look forward to seeing you. Would you stand with me as we dedicate our time in the Scriptures to the Lord? Our Heavenly Father, I want to thank you again for Jesus, the living Word. And Lord, also for your written Word. As we continue to explore the evidence for the validity of the Bible, I pray that you would remove distractions from our mind. You'd help us to focus on you and on your Word. That you would soften our hearts. And Lord, that you would give us the courage to respond in whatever way it is you would call us to. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. may be seated. We're in a series in which we're looking at what it is that Christians believe and why they believe it. And presently we're examining the evidence for why it is we believe in the Bible and So far, I've called three witnesses to the stand to testify to the trustworthiness of the Bible. The first is the testimony of biblical inspiration and infallibility, which addresses the question, how do we know what people wrote in the Bible is from God and therefore true? The second witness is the testimony of manuscript reliability, which speaks to the question, given that the scriptures were copied and translated multiple times down through time, how can we be sure that what we read in the Bible today is the same as when the Bible was first written? The third witness I called on is the testimony of archaeology. A couple of centuries ago, scholars of higher criticism asserted that the Bible consisted primarily of myths and legends because it referred to places and people and events that had no basis in reality. Well, about that time, the science of archaeology went to work and conducted hundreds and ultimately thousands of archaeological digs in the land of the Bible that, pr- that produced astounding evidence that validated the Bible in every case and began to silence the critics. And so with that quick review, I now call on my fourth witness, the testimony of the prophets. The Bible is the only sacred book that makes specific predictions about the future. Some of the sacred books of other religions 
do have a few so-called prophecies, but they are so vague and general that most scholars have difficulty putting them on the same playing field as the biblical prophecies. And that is because in the Bible, there are not just a few, but literally hundreds of prophecies which are very specific and detailed. For example, in the Quran, the writings of Muhammad, there is one instance of specific prophecy, a self-fulfilling prophecy in which he, Muhammad himself, said he would return to Mecca. That is significantly different from the prophecy that Jesus made that he would return from the grave. The one is relatively easy to fulfill. The other is humanly impossible. Now, have you ever wondered why God would give so many specific prophecies like this in the Scriptures? Well, we find the answer in Isaiah 41. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah 41. This is what we read there. Present your case, says the Lord. Set forth your arguments, says Jacob's king. Tell us, you idols, what is going to happen? Declare to us the things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are God's. In this passage, God challenges those who are seeking the true God and those ensnared in false religion to realize that only the true God is capable of knowing and predicting the future. God put hundreds of prophecies in the Bible hundreds of years before they were actually fulfilled to show that He is God and that the Word that his word, the Bible, is true. For example, the prophet Ezekiel, under the inspiration of the Lord, gave specific prophecies concerning scores of ancient cities with which Israel had dealings. One of those is the ancient city of Tyre, located on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean in what is now the country of Lebanon. At the time these prophecies were given, Tyre, like most of the ancient cities, was a very wicked city, a city you would abhorred, uh, abhorred living in. Well, God finally says, enough to all of the wickedness. And in Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 3, God gives this prophecy concerning Tyre's future. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, Tyre, and will bring many nations against you like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. Down in verse 7, we continue. From the north, I am going to bring against Tyre Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And then down in verse 12, they will break down your walls and demolish your fine homes and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. I will make you a bare rock, and you will become a place to spread fishnets. You will never be rebuilt, for I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. Now, Ezekiel boldly predicted that somewhere in the future, the following would happen to the city of Tyre. The city of Tyre would be utterly destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar. Furthermore, the city would be bare like the top of a rock. 
Thirdly, the stones, timber and rubble of the city would be thrown into the sea. Fourthly, Tyre would never be rebuilt. And fifthly, it would be a place where fishermen would spread their nets. Now, when Ezekiel gave this prophecy, the people wrote him off as a lunatic, as you can well imagine. If I was to have a word from the Lord, let's say that the city of Vancouver was on borrowed time and that it would soon be completely destroyed and cast into the sea. You would want to check if someone was putting something into my water supply. And this is what happened to Ezekiel. People wrote him off, in part because Tyre was an incredible fortress. I mean, the walls of Tyre were 80 feet thick and 100 feet tall. That's as high as a 10-story building and wide enough to park seven cars abreast along the top. So what actually happened? Well, as prophesied, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked Tyre and it took him 13 years to conquer the mainland city of Tyre. When his army finally succeeded in breaking through the walls in 573 BC, Nebuchadnezzar was in for the surprise of his life because when he entered the mainland city of Tyre, he found it totally deserted. I mean, can you imagine trying to break down a door for 13 years or so, and when you finally do, there's nobody home? I mean, this was one frustrated king, let me tell you. So where were the people? Well, they, knowing that Nebuchadnezzar would eventually gain entrance to their city, the people left the mainland Tyre, and they settled on an island about half a mile off the coast. And while Nebuchadnezzar was pounding away at the walls of the main city, they were fortifying a new city on the island. Well, it appears that Nebuchadnezzar didn't feel like spending another 13 years trying to conquer the island city of Tyre because history tells us that at that point, he and his troops packed up and they just left. And so the mainland city of Tyre was destroyed as predicted, but the city of Tyre on the island remained a powerful city for several hundred years. Now, you see, if you had lived at that point in time, and you'd read these prophecies of Ezekiel, it would have seemed to you that the prophecy was wrong. That this was not what God had said would happen. Well, hundreds of years after Ezekiel died, in 332 B.C., Alexander the Great, he was on a mission to capture all the ports on the east coast of the Mediterranean. One after another, the city surrendered. And then he came to the island of Tyre, built with impregnable walls half a mile out in the Mediterranean. He set up his elaborate sound system, and he commanded the people of Tyre to surrender, and they just laughed at him. Well, that really ticked him off. His navy was still a far way off, and so he ordered his troops to build a causeway from the mainland city to the island city of Tyre. And how do you suppose he did that? Well, he had his troops tear down the walls of the old mainland city of Tyre, 
take the stones, the timber, the rubble, and cast them into the sea. Alexander's forces literally scraped up every last piece of that city in building that causeway, which ultimately led to the destruction of the island city of Tyre. Following this, remnants of the city remained until about 1290 AD, when during the time of the Crusades, the Muslims completely destroyed what remained of Tyre, and it has remained in ruins since that day. Now, if you Google Tyre, you will see that there is a modern city of Tyre today, but it is located down the coast from the original site. The old city of Tyre has never been rebuilt, even though a great freshwater spring is located there. Philip Myers, a secular historian, writes this about the ancient city of Tyre. Alexander the Great reduced it to ruins in 332 BC. The larger part of the site of this once great city is now bare as the top of a rock, a place where fishermen who still frequent the spot spread their nets to dry. Every prediction concerning Tyre has come true. Peter Stoner in Science Speaks has determined the odds of these prophecies coming true concerning the city of Tyre. He says it's one in 75 million. Absolutely amazing, especially when you realize that there are many more prophecies like this in the Bible of other ancient cities like Sidon, Babylon, Samaria, and Jerusalem that have been similarly fulfilled. And if you want to study further on, that particular, on this particular subject, many resources I could point out to you, but Josh McDowell's most updated book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict, you will find very helpful. Folks, this is no ordinary book. A second prophecy I would like us to consider has to do with the people of Israel. In various places in the Old Testament, God warns Israel in no uncertain terms what will happen to them if they continue to disobey Him and worship other gods. One of these passages is Leviticus chapter 26, verse 31. Again, if you have your Bibles, turn to that. It reads like this. The Lord God said, I will turn your cities into ruins and lay waste your sanctuaries. I will scatter you among the nations. Your land will be laid waste. Your cities will lie in ruins. Now, this prophecy is pretty clear. The cities and the temple will be destroyed, and the people of Israel will be scattered and persecuted wherever they go. Now, turn over to Ezekiel chapter 36. Look down to verse 33, where we read this. This is what the Sovereign Lord says, On the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle your towns, and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. Now in this prophecy, God says the land of Israel will become re-inhabited by the Jews and that the cities would be revived, the land would be farmed again. Now here's the interesting part. 
The Bible prophesies that the people of Israel will be removed from their homeland and dispersed throughout the then known world, not once, but twice in its history. And that God in his providence will resettle them back to their homeland in each instance. Isaiah 11, verse 11, reads like this. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time and reclaim the remnant that is left of his people. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. So with that in mind, let's consider how these prophecies were fulfilled in history. God's prophecy was fulfilled the first time after the reign of King Solomon when the boneheaded decisions of Solomon's son resulted in a dispute and conflict in Israel and that resulted in the dividing of Israel into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern kingdom. Both kingdoms, over time, became very ungodly, and as predicted, God raised up the nation of Assyria to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel in 721 B.C. And they, the, the, the people were scattered all through the then-known world from the northern kingdom. A little over 150 years later, in 587 B.C., God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah to destroy Jerusalem and also the first temple that Solomon had built and to take much of the population captive to Babylon for a period of around 70 years. However, as prophesied in response to the people of Israel humbling themselves, repenting of their sins, God moved the heart of King Cyrus to allow the Israelites to return to Jerusalem. And within a period of around 100 years, God brought the people of Israel back to their homeland and they began to rebuild the city of Jerusalem. The temple was rebuilt under the leadership of Ezra and the walls of the city were rebuilt under the leadership of Nehemiah. And Israel prospered once again. That is until about 400 years later. We find them living in rebellion against God and worshiping other gods again. And once again, the people are attacked. Jerusalem and the second temple are destroyed by the Romans. The Jews who survive are scattered all over the world. Forty years before it happened, Jesus predicted that the city of Jerusalem and that the temple would both be destroyed in Luke 21, verse 24, and Mark chapter 13, verse 2, respectively. While well, it happened just as was prophesied. In A.D. 70, the Roman legions smashed and destroyed everything that Judaism stood for. The synagogues were destroyed. The temple was smashed and burnt. By 135 A.D., non-Jews were in control 
of the land of Israel. By 1927, as prophesied, Palestine, or the land of Israel, was a land in ruins. Floyd Hamilton wrote at the time, in almost no other land are the ruins of cities and villages so numerous as they are in Palestine. Meanwhile, the Israeli people were dispersed all over the globe, especially in Europe and in Russia, and we know that wherever they went, they were persecuted, as prophesied. Now, you would think that more than 1,900 years after being scattered all over the globe, after intermarrying with people from various nations and millions facing persecution and death, that it would spell the end of the Israeli people. And yet, that was not to be because God clearly prophesied in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 11, that he would reach out his hands a second time and gather the exiles of Israel back to their homeland, which is why the reestablishment of the state of Israel by the United Nations in 1948 and the return of more than one million Jews to their homeland after being dispersed around the world for nearly 2,000 years is one of the most amazing and remarkable fulfillment of prophecy of all time. And even more astonishing is that the return of the Jews to their homeland was foretold in detail by the prophet Isaiah some 2,500 years ago. This book is no ordinary book. All of the biblical prophecies, however, of all of them, none stand out more than the hundreds of prophecies in the Bible that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I want to take a moment to just look at a few of them. And first, I just want to give a little background. Ever since our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled against God in the garden, God has been on a mission to bring all people back in right relationship to himself. Toward that end, God chose Abraham and his descendants, the Israelites, not because they were more righteous or more gifted than any other people group, but because he wanted to accomplish a divine purpose through them. That divine purpose was to reveal himself to the world through the faithful example of the people of Israel. In Genesis 12, God makes a covenant with Abram, whom he would later call Abraham. His promises, he promises Abram that if he and his descendants are faithful to the Lord, and they do not worship and serve other gods, he will bless them and he will make them a blessing. In fact, he promises very specifically that all peoples on earth will be blessed through his descendants. God wanted to bless the world through Abraham's descendants, the people of Israel, but they failed to be the righteous community that God called them to be. And so in the fullness of time, God chose to accomplish his kingdom purposes through the promised Messiah and to establish a new covenant and a new kingdom through him. 
Now, Christians, of course, believe that Jesus Christ is the descendant of Abraham through whom the whole world will be blessed and that he's the Messiah spoken of and prophesied about in the Old Testament. Now, there are those particularly of the Jewish faith who do not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And yet, as we'll see in a moment, there are numerous prophecies, in fact, way more than we'd be able to touch on, about the Messiah, which only Jesus fulfilled. If you want to read more about this and and get deeper into this, I want to direct you to Dr. Michael Brown's multi-volume series on answering Jewish objections to Jesus. Also, Lee Strobel's book, The Case for the Real Jesus, and an interview that Strobel has with Dr. Michael Brown, who was a, who is, um, has a Jewish heritage himself, by the way. I also want to give credit to Michael Brown for some of his thoughts on this particular subject. Now, first of all, let's look at some of the prophecies relating to uh, Christ's family origin. In Genesis 49, verse 10, we read this. The scepter will not depart from Judah. Now, a scepter is a symbol of royal power. And so when it says a royal power will not depart from Judah, it's really uh, prophesying that the Messiah will be a descendant of the tribe of Judah. Now, in Jeremiah 23, verse 5, we read this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord our righteous Savior. Now the term branch, even among Jewish scholars, is commonly used to refer to the Messiah, meaning that there will be a lasting kingdom through David, King David, and the Messiah would be a descendant of King David. And so we see here, these prophecies point out that the Messiah's origin of birth would be from the tribe of Judah and from the house of David, which of course was true for Jesus. Now, in 2 Chronicles 7 and Daniel chapter 9, we're given another set of prophecies that point very clearly to the Messiah and his activities, actually in a very profound way. In 2 Chronicles 7, the first temple that was built by Solomon is dedicated to the Lord approximately in 960 B.C., God appears to Solomon on that day of dedication and he promises to bless and to prosper his people if they remain humble and continue to pray and seek his face and follow the Lord in obedience. On the other hand, God warns Solomon that if the people disobey his commands, go off and worship other gods, he will allow the temple to be destroyed, he will allow them to be uprooted and to be scattered among the nations. Well, we just talked about that a moment ago. The people of Israel, as we just heard 
grew rebellious against God, increasingly so over time. And about 200 years later, God allowed the Assyrians to conquer the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 B.C. About 150 years later, God allowed King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to conquer the southern kingdom of Judah to destroy the city of Jerusalem, the first temple, and to exile the Jewish people that remained there to Babylon. Now, while he was in captivity in Babylon, the prophet Daniel was given a vision from God of future events. Here is the prophecy Daniel was given by the Lord. I'm going to read it, and then I'm going to try to explain it to you. You're going to have to put your thinking caps on, though, and follow closely. Seventy-sevens, that's referring to numbers of years. It refers to years or a total of 490 years. Seventy-sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. No one understand this. Here comes a timeline. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, referring to the Messiah, comes, there will be seven sevens or 49 years and 62 sevens or 434 years for a total of 483 years. After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing. The people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary referring to the second temple. Now, in addition to that, if you go over to Haggai chapter 2, verse 6, God says through Haggai, the prophet Haggai, that the glory of the second temple is going to be greater than that of the first temple, Solomon's temple. And in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, God gives the reason. He says the glory of the second temple will be greater than the glory of the first temple because the anointed one, the Messiah will personally visit the second temple. Now follow along as I summarize these prophecies and what they are saying. While he was still in captivity, Daniel is given a vision of the events that will happen over the next 490 years, beginning with the Israelites returning from Babylon to Jerusalem, in other words, from captivity, and starting to rebuild the city, the city walls, and the temple. Starting from that to the time, hundreds of years later, when the anointed one, the Messiah, is put to death. Number two, Daniel is told in verse 24 that the Messiah will atone for the sins of the people once for all time and usher in an everlasting righteousness in his role as the great high priest. Thirdly, Daniel's told in verse 26 that the Messiah will be put to death, and sometime after that, the city of Jerusalem 
and the second temple will be destroyed once again. Now here's the thing. We know that Jerusalem and the second temple of Israel was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. Therefore, based on the prophecy given to Daniel, we know that four things will be true of the real Messiah described in the prophecies of the Old Testament. First of all, he will arrive on the planet before the destruction of the second temple or 70 AD. Secondly, he will atone for the sins of the people before 70 AD. Thirdly, he will personally visit the second temple before it's destroyed in 70 AD. And fourthly, he will be put to death before 70 AD. Now, folks, I ask you, who other than Jesus could have possibly be fulfilled these things before 70 A.D.? He is either the Messiah or nobody is. Jesus fulfilled these prophecies completely. Now, I want you to turn to Isaiah 53, where we have an even more detailed description of the Messiah. Isaiah 53, just open it up in your Bibles because we're going to work our way through it. Look at verse 2. He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This tells us that there was nothing about the Messiah's family of origin, his place of birth, his economic status that captivated people's attention. He was not born in a palace, and even his appearance was not specially attractive. That is the description given of the Messiah. Now, we don't have any information about Jesus' physical appearance. But we do know that Jesus was born into a poor family and then he grew up in a small, obscure village of Nazareth. So much so that those who were seeking to discredit him often would sarcastically say about him, can anything good come from Nazareth? Verse 3 says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Here we have a description of the attitude that his executioners had toward him as they were beating him, flogging him, spitting on him, mocking and insulting him. It also describes the reaction of the people as they watch the gruesome scene of the executioners mutilating the Messiah's body to the point of being unrecognizable. Read Isaiah 52, verse 13. It talks about that. And folks, that's precisely what happened to Jesus. 
Verse 4. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Again, Jesus fits this description of what the Messiah would endure perfectly. The people of Israel, they thought that Jesus was being punished for his own sin. What they didn't realize is that he was suffering. He was paying for their sins and the sins of everyone, past, present, and future. Verse 5 explains it so well. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep. We've gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity, the sins of us all. This not only describes the Messiah's atoning for the sins of humanity, but it would be done through crucifixion, which is remarkable because crucifixion was a Roman invention. It was not even practiced centuries before when this prophecy was made. This prophecy was made 700 years before these events happened. It's also remarkable because Jesus lived and atoned for the sins of the world during the time of history when crucifixion was being used as a form of execution. Verse 7, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. We know that all through his arrest and his trial, his flogging, his crucifixion, Jesus may have cried out in pain and in anguish, but he didn't try to defend himself. He didn't protest. He didn't fight back. In fact, when his disciple Peter lashed out with his sword and cut off the ear of the, of the shoulder, the shoulder, soldier, Jesus restored the ear. Verse 8 and 9 says, for he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. This verse tells us that Messiah would die. And even though he was without sin, he would be buried among the wicked the sinful, in a rich man's tomb, which again is exactly what happened to Jesus. Verse 10 says, even though the Lord made the Messiah's death an offering for the sin of humanity, the Messiah will see his offspring, and then it says, and prolong his days. 
In other words, he will live again, which indicates the Messiah will be raised from the dead and he will see his spiritual offspring, his followers again, which of course was true for Jesus. Verse 12 says, he was numbered among transgressors. He made intercession for the transgressors, which refers to him being crucified alongside thieves and praying for them. Now, folks, I ask you, as you hear these vivid descriptions of who the Messiah is and how he would suffer in order to atone for our sins, who else could this be but Jesus? Now, the Bible doesn't just describe the coming Messiah as our high priest who would atone for our sins. It also describes him as our Lord and King. He is our great high priest, but he's also our Lord and King. He's a priestly king. Isaiah 9, 6 describes the Messiah this way. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Now, critics look at the world around us and they say, Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah who would bring justice and righteousness because look how messed up the world is. Where is the justice and the righteousness that the Messiah was to bring? Well, the Bible teaches that one day Jesus is going to return and he will fulfill the remainder of the prophecies that have been given. He will bring justice and righteousness in its fullness. But make no mistake, it's already happening now. I remind you that Jesus came to establish his kingdom, a new kingdom, and he said that his kingdom was not of this world. When we follow him, when we live righteously and justly, his kingdom comes to earth in us and through us. It brings a little bit of heaven to earth. When people who are far from God turn from their wickedness, their selfishness, their rebellion, and they embrace Jesus as their Savior, their Lord and King, when they surrender their lives to following Him with all of their heart, His kingdom of justice and righteousness becomes a reality in their life and a little bit more in this world. 
The truth is Jesus already rules and reigns as royal Lord and King over the lives of hundreds of millions of people in every nation around this planet. And we have no idea, folks, how dark and how jaded and how unjust our world would be were it not for the radical change that has taken place because of the love and, and grace of Jesus Christ. Friends, his kingdom, his justice, and his righteousness is advancing. His light is shining to people everywhere through his people. As God promised Abraham, the entire world is being blessed through him as he offers life, abundant life, and salvation to all who will humble themselves and receive his love and grace. Dr. Michael Brown summarizes it this way. He says, we see in the scriptures and that this messianic figure will be both priestly and royal. He will deal with sin as well as rule and reign. He will first suffer before he is raised up and exalted. He will come both riding on a donkey, meek and lowly, as well as come in the clouds of glory one day. He will first be rejected by his people, and then he will be the light to the nations. He will suffer terribly for our sins as a righteous substitute, but the power of his deliverance from death will cause the ends of the earth to worship God. Amen. Friends, can there be any doubt? Jesus is Messiah. He is Lord and King. He is our rock, our fortress, our Savior and King. To Him be glory forever and ever. You know, of the more than 300 prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament, there's at least 17 that Jesus could not have arranged or orchestrated. And we've reviewed most of them. Peter Stoner in Science Speaks says, the odds are of only eight of these prophecies concerning the Messiah being fulfilled in one man is one in 10 to the 17th power. To understand this, he, he gives us a visual. He says, if you took... 10 to the 17th silver dollars and you lay them on the face of the state of Texas, you will cover the entire state two feet deep in silver dollars. Then mark one of those silver dollars with an X and throw it back in and stir up all those dollars thoroughly. Finally, blindfold a person. Tell them they can go anywhere in the state that they want, but they need to pick out the silver dollar that they believe has the X on it. The probability of that person getting the right one would be about the same odds as just eight of the more than 17 prophecies that a person could not have arranged. Just eight coming true in one man, coming true in Jesus Christ. Folks, I trust you're beginning to realize and understand why I say that 
this is no ordinary book and why I believe to the core of my being that it is the Word of God. I want to close our time by going back to Isaiah 53 for a moment because as I studied it and went through it and read it carefully this last week, I found myself saying, Oh Lord, please don't let this ever grow old or ordinary in my life. Have you ever wondered why he endured all of that? He entered, he endured all that pain and that shame out of love for you and me. Driven by love, he died so that we might live. You see, the Bible says we all have sinned. In other words, we've all blown it. We've all thumbed our nose at God at some point in time. And our sin deserved punishment. If you do a crime, you've got to do the time. That's what justice demands. Well, our sin separates us from God, and that won't change unless someone pays for our sins, our crimes. The question is, what sacrifice? Who is great enough? Who is pure enough? Who is perfect enough? Who is powerful enough to cover and pay for the guilt of the entire world? God declared there was only one, his one and only son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Out of love for us, Jesus, the very Son of God, became one of us. He lived a life of life without sin. He died on the cross. He shed his blood for my sin and for your sin. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. He paid for every sin you and I have ever committed or will ever commit. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus became sin for us. God took all of our sins and placed them on Jesus Christ and took the perfect righteousness of Jesus and placed it on us, making us righteous and pure in the sight of God. That's why Jesus came. And I'm wondering if you have ever thought about how terrible it was for Christ on the day that he died. If you can imagine the worst of sins ever committed, murder, rape, child abuse, all the horrific atrocities, the genocides, the wars, every sin committed by all of humanity down through time, all of that was placed on Christ. Imagine the horror of it. Imagine the feeling of God's wrath, of God's justice being poured out on Jesus for all of the sins of the world. And imagine the loneliness that he must have felt when the Father turned away from the Son. Is it any wonder that Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's the thing. Christ endured, and he was victorious. He paid for every sin, past, present, and future. 
that you and I will ever commit. That's why just before he died, he cried out and said, it is finished, it's finished. The ultimate and final sacrifice has been provided. The sins of humanity have been paid for in full. It is finished. So how can we repay such love? You can't repay it. Jesus paid it all. All you can do is accept the forgiveness that Christ offers you by His grace and give your life totally to Him the way that He gave His life totally for you. It's the only way to get to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you haven't embraced Jesus and you want to be set free from all of your regrets and your sin and become a friend of the Lord, I'm going to invite you to reach out to Him right now in prayer and do that. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? God sees the state of your heart. He knows how serious you are. He knows your thoughts. He can hear even your whispers right now. I invite you to pray this with me. Dear Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for paying for my sin with your shed blood. Thank you for making a way for me to know you and to be your friend. I acknowledge and confess to you, Lord, that I have been proud, sinful, and rebellious, and that I am incapable of paying for this on my own. I accept your free gift of forgiveness. I give you all of my life, and I commit to growing in my relationship with you. Please invade my life transform me as unto your image and live your life through me, I pray in the precious name of Jesus. If you prayed that prayer, friend, the Bible says you're a new creation. You are in Christ and he is in you. And he will live his life through you as you daily surrender your life to him. And just a word, to those of us who are Christians. We can't repay the love of Jesus displayed on the cross, but we can respond to his love by humbling ourselves, resolving never to allow the message of the cross to grow old or to grow complacent about what Jesus did for us. We can respond by worshiping with all of our heart. Worship isn't just praising him in song or word in a service like this. Worship is living all out for him each and every day, no matter what comes our way, keeping our eyes on the cross. When you've been hurt, overlooked, neglected, feeling used, when your dignity has been assaulted and everything inside of you is crying out, to hurt that person back or to bail out, it's time to refocus on the cross and to worship the Lord. When you are tempted to live for yourself rather than giving what God has given to you, your time, your talent, your abilities and resources to be an eternal difference maker in the lives of others, 
it's time to refocus on the cross and to worship the Lord. When you've suffered loss, the loss of a loved one, the loss of health, the loss of a special relationship, the loss of a business, a job, and you're tempted to shake your fist at God and say, how could a God who loves me allow this to happen? It's time to refocus on the cross and to worship the Lord. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Some of you, you may be struggling right now and you just need someone to pray with you. You may have questions you're seeking answers for. Some of you prayed that prayer that I prayed earlier. You prayed it along with me and we're going to be up here. We'd love for you to come and just share that decision with us. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And God be with you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.